0: Welcome to Crime Time with Maggie Sten. What you're going to be listening to is a series of episodes called The Times Aren't Changing, They Have Changed. With me is Rod Murray, who has a lot of questions.
1: Well, Maggie, another really interesting area of the law to explore today. We're talking about First Nations people and the criminal justice system. Before we start, can you give us a bit of a thumbnail sketch which is maybe asking too much for a big issue, uh, the history of Aboriginal rights in Australia?
0: Well, the short answer, up until very recently, they had no rights. That's the short answer, but I'll expand on that a little. At the time of Federation, which was 1901, they were excluded from the rights of everything. They couldn't have Australian citizenship they couldn't vote, they couldn't be counted in a census, and they just didn't exist.
1: Weren't counted as people, as I understand.
0: No, they weren't. They weren't. They they were here, and, well, that was the then throughout the 20th century, there was the stolen generation that we all know about, where the idea was that if we could make them become white, there could be some hope for them. So... Aboriginal children were taken from their families and given to white families. Then there were, in those days, they were called Aboriginal reserves, where they lived on and they were usually run by white people who, if you read about it and you believe the stories, they probably weren't very good. I would say that the sort of people who ran those reserves probably had the same mentality and attitude as prison guards do.
1: Pretty confronting stuff to think about, isn't it? This happened this century, essentially this century. well, not this century, in the last century, but close enough. We're only yes. going back one generation. Our grandparents were alive at this Exactly. Many of our parents. Exactly.
0: But you have to remember, too, Australia had a white Australia mm. policy so, and that didn't end till the early 70s. Mm. So even though we had these non-white people that were the original inhabitants of this country, people really didn't know what to do with them. Mm. And again, if you look at the rest of the world, I don't think that's unusual. The rest of the world was the same. There was slavery in lots of countries. We did not have slavery as such, but in my view, it wasn't much better. No, indeed. Having said all that, there were lots of these token things happening. For instance, in 1948, there was a citizen bill passed. Up until then, there was no such thing as an Australian citizen. You were a British citizen. Right. So there was some tokenism they could become citizens of that, but nothing much ever happened. Then in 1962, there was a bill passed that Aboriginals could vote. That was. In my view, again, we're really racist, but we're pretending not to be. So we do these little token things.
1: It is a big step forward, though, is it not? It is. It is. Important. important The biggest
0: step was in 1967, there was a referendum. And I believe that it was a referendum that to this day had the most effect on anything. And people were really deciding to change things because Australians voted to change the constitution so that like all other Australians, Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders would be counted as part of the population and the Commonwealth would be able to make laws for them. That was that big change because up until then, they weren't really subject to the laws of the Commonwealth because they didn't exist. And that was really the beginning of the push. And as an aside, I was still at school in the late 60s and I had a holiday job where I was working in a jewellery shop. And quite by accident, the owner's sister and brother-in-law were running or living on an Aboriginal reserve in the Northern Territory. And he was doing a lot of things to try to change things then. And I remember that whenever he came to Sydney, he'd always complain about the minister. There there actually was a minister for Aboriginal affairs in those days. Uh-huh. But nobody knew much about this stuff. And this guy was really trying to change things. And he would say that the conditions, there were appalling. And unfortunately, I hear from people now that it's not much better.
1: It's not hard to find. Evidence and stories—is it of yes uh, inconsistencies and inequality being alive and well?
0: But it's a little bit alarming that it hasn't really changed, mm. because it's all very nice that we've got people in Canberra agitating and people in you know the New South Wales Parliament agitating. But when it actually comes to the people out there, I've heard that you know if you go there, the There's the school and it's a really nice school and there's 10 kids in the Aboriginal school but the 25 are still across the road playing football and not going to school Hmm. and nobody's doing anything.
1: There's interesting cultural issues to consider amongst all that as well. I suppose, Maggie, this all leads to when Aboriginal people bump up against the criminal justice system and there's some fairly confronting statistics about that, isn't
0: there? Oh, the, the statistics are frightening. 12,566 Indigenous prisoners Australia-wide. They make up 31% of the nationwide prison population. That's a staggering figure. What
1: percentage of the Australian population do Aboriginal people make up? 3.3%. So mathematically, 10 times more likely to be incarcerated than a non-Aboriginal Australian citizen.
0: Exactly. And in New South Wales, they make up 28% of the prison population and 3.4% of the New South Wales population.
1: So fairly similar sort of figures. The simple and the obvious extraction to make from that is that the criminal justice system is somehow penalising Aboriginal people at a greater rate. That non Aboriginal people. Is that right or is it more complex than that?
0: It's far more complex than that. It's more complex than that because judicial officers are actually aware of the problem. And when they come to court, there's nothing to suggest that magistrates or judges discriminate against Indigenous Australians.
1: So sentencing is similar for. Sentencing is
0: similar. And in fact, a lot of their problems are recognised, and I'll get to that Mm. in a minute. But the problem is that poverty, alcohol, drugs, exactly the same problems that the white population have.
1: These aren't race-based issues, are they?
0: No, they're not race-based issues, but they seem to be more prolific with Aboriginal people because I think of the transition. We... Took the view that our culture was the right way and theirs was no good. So, therefore, we made them live in houses that were for nuclear families. That's not their culture. They traditionally don't have nuclear families. And it's like all transitions, it just wasn't working. I believe it was the same problem with the American Indian. So, there's a lot of poverty. And particularly the ones that live in the city, you know, where they're around Waterloo, they're around Redfern. And the other problem is that those areas are more policed and they're known to the police and they get arrested much more.
1: Is there something in that that's problematic, the over-policing of areas where Aboriginal population is higher?
0: It's, yes and no. It's
1: tricky, isn't it? It's very
0: tricky because every community deserves to be safe and there's not only Aboriginal people in those communities and in those towns, hmm. but we have a divide. And they they are. They, they're known to the police. Police aren't perfect. You, know, you get good ones, bad ones. And that's what happens, and then they're brought before the court. But the courts now recognise a lot of the things that Aboriginal people have been through. For instance, there's a case, Me versus The Queen, which was a High Court case um, that was decided in 2013, and that case is very important for sentencing of Aboriginal people. Mr. Bugbee was an Aboriginal man from the far west New South Wales town of Wilcania. He has little education and is unable to read or write. Not unusual. He grew up in a family with a history of violence and alcohol abuse and started abusing drugs and alcohol himself at the age of 13. Again, not unusual. He witnessed his father stabbing his mother multiple times. Both he and his partner are alcoholics. After first offending at 12 years old, he was regularly detained in juvenile detention until he was transferred to an adult prison at 18. He has spent most of his adult life behind bars, which has included repeated suicide attempts. He also has a history of head injury and auditory hallucinations probably brought on by drugs and alcohol. So what we have is he's poor. He comes from an underprivileged background. He's got an alcohol problem. He's got a drug problem. And he's illiterate. He was a prisoner at Broken Hill Jail. In response to a perceived injustice, he started throwing billiard balls at prison officers. Just as an aside, unfortunately people who abuse drugs and alcohol and do it for a long time, it seems to stunt their psychological growth. So if you start drinking and taking drugs at thirteen, you tend to be emotionally and psychologically like a thirteen year old. Yeah, when you're forty. So obviously this happened to this man and he was institutionalised as well because he'd been in and out of juvenile justice and jails. So because he threw these billiard balls, a prison officer called Gould was severely injured. He lost the sight in his left eye. He suffered a great deal of physical pain. He could no longer work as a prison officer. The attack had a continuing and profound psychological impact on him. So in February 2012, Judge Lerve, who's a judge of the district court, sentenced Mr. Bugby to six years and three months' imprisonment with a non parole period of four years and three months. The Crown appealed.
1: That the sentence wasn't severe enough.
0: Yes, that the sentence wasn't severe enough. This guy, you know, had a long criminal record and this is a serious injury. On 18th of October 2012, the Court of Criminal Appeal upheld a Crown appeal against the apparent inadequacy of that sentence and resentenced him to seven years six months with a non-parole period of five years. So an extra year on top of the yes, sentence. Yes. Mr. Bugby appealed to the High Court. Counsel for Mr. Bugby was Miss Yeeha, Senior Counsel, as she then was. She is now Justice Yeeha of the Supreme Court. She argued that while his personal history, which included a history of separation from his family because he was one of the stolen generation, multiple periods in foster care, boys' homes and juvenile justice facilities from age 12, would be taken into account by any any sentencing court, that history took on quite a different significance when viewed in the context of the systematic impact of cultural dispossession and colonialism on Indigenous Australians.
1: So a combined effect of... Yes.
0: You've got all the deprivation, but coupled with that, you're displaced. In a majority judgment, and this is very interesting because to get a majority judgment from the High Court, and particularly in criminal cases, is a real big deal. The High Court allowed the appeal, holding that an offender's background of deprivation is a relevant factor when determining an appropriate sentence for that offender. In doing so, the court applied a race-neutral approach. They didn't, in other words, they didn't say it's because he's an Aboriginal. The region is not because he's an Aboriginal. And this is where a lot of people go wrong. They think Bugby only applies to Aboriginals. No, that is not the case. That was a very important decision, not just for Aboriginal people, but all It's
1: a watershed decision. People. That's a huge impact on sentencing broadly, exactly. Exactly. taking into account the background of people who are before the court.
0: Yeah okay, Um, they applied a race-neutral approach stating that the deprived background of an Aboriginal offender may mitigate the sentence appropriate for an offence, just as the deprived background of a non-Aboriginal offender may mitigate the offender's sentence. Specifically, the majority held that Section one, which is a section in the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, does not direct a sentencing judge to give attention to the circumstances of an Aboriginal offender in a way that is different from the attention she or he would give to the circumstances of an offender who is non-Aboriginal, as this would impair individ- individualised justice in sentencing. And that, I think, is a very strong point because that means all people who come before the the law are equal when it comes to colour, race. But what they're saying is you have to look at the subjective features of that person. And if they do come from a lifelong background of deprivation, that has to be taken into account. And that case can be used for any migrant people who come out here. I mean, look at the people who come from places like Afghanistan or in the 70s they came from war-torn Lebanon. That case applies to all those people. So it's a very important case. So a lot of people argue that, oh, You've probably heard this argument: Oh, these Aboriginals have it too easy. They get extra rice. They get this. They get that. We gave them houses, and look what happened. Well, yeah, we did give them houses, but what did we take away from them?
1: It's a uh, complex, complicated, it's very
0: and- complex, and we've got we've got a lot of catching up to do, but we also have a lot of educating to do.
1: It, it goes back to those. Those figures you quoted first off about the, the prison population, mm. even the most ardent racist would have to concede that mathematically it makes no sense, does it? No, no. You, you can't make a case. And so there must be reasons why this is the case and those reasons must be explored yes. and where possible, corrected, fixed. Yes, yeah. And this is a part of that. So the, the essentials of this finding are, that it seems to me, everybody is treated equally, your background is taken into account. If part of your background is that being Aboriginal has had a negative impact on you or you've been treated differently over the course of your life because of that, that's taken into account as well. Yes. And that seems sensible.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that was all coming. Having said that, I think there were pockets of people throughout Australia and groups of people that did do their bit. As you know from previous podcasts, in another life I was a teacher... And I taught at Stanmore Public School, and I taught there in the 70s. We had a lot of Aboriginal children at Stanmore Public School. We would give them breakfast before school, and we would give them lunch. And we would provide shoes and things that were required. Because those things weren't available at home? Yes, but, they weren't. Hmm. They weren't, because these kids... and these kids would often go home and a parent wouldn't be there because the parent had gone off to visit whoever. Um, it was just a very different culture.
1: It's not hard to see how someone who grows up in that environment might recreate that environment in their own adulthood. Yes. And it becomes a cycle. And we see this in non-Indigenous communities as well. Yes. Not uncommon for families or for somebody who's grown up in a family where somebody might be violent or constantly coming into contact with the law. The same thing happens with them. We don't all start at an equal footing you would know as a teacher. No. We do not all start – we don't all have the same opportunity. You can't get to 40 years old and say, well, we all had the same chance, but well, we didn't, did we?
0: No, we didn't. We didn't. And, you know, Australia's always been seen as a lucky country and compared to lots of other countries throughout the world, it is lucky. But it certainly has had its problems.
1: Luckier for some, isn't it?
0: Yes, yes. So, <laughs> no um, So there were people who did those things. The other important thing that has happened is that um, there's now a pilot wallamer Court,
1: and this is interesting, isn't it? This yeah. is a this seems a progressive idea, which doesn't mean it'll all work out fantastically, but it's a step in the right direction. It feels like.
0: Yes, it is because what it is is, and I mean, I won't go through all the details of it because it's quite complicated they have to plead guilty to the offence that they've committed and once they've pled guilty then it's monitored by a judge of the district court and he does this in conjunction with elders with aboriginal elders so in they are sentenced not only by the community that they live in because they are australians but also by their, by the people who are important in their culture. So it's a coming together of the two cultures, and because both have decided that this is what has to happen, so that people understand what they're doing, why it's wrong in both cultures, and so that they don't do it again. And. This has only been going a short time, but hopefully it'll be good.
1: Do we have any anecdotal evidence as to its effectiveness as yet or too early no, to tell? No, because
0: it's only been going about six months.
1: Right. Oh, that is way too early to yeah. tell, isn't but,
0: it? But, but prior to that, they had circuit sentencing, which was done in the local court, which again was with their um, Aboriginal
1: elders. So some understanding of the cultural aspect yes. of somebody's Aboriginal background is in yes. taking into account. Because, of course, the Aboriginal community does not want to see this happen to their people either, do no, they? No, they don't. They don't. It's, it's heartbreaking for the
0: elders of Aboriginal It's really heartbreaking for them. They really don't want to see it. And they've had a lot of problems. You know, they had um, the housing problems, which were their own people were ripping them off. They don't want to see this. Hmm. Like any community, they're concerned they want people who aren't alcoholics, who aren't beating their wives, who are upstanding members of the community. And this is happening more and more. I mean, I think Senator Bonner was the first Aboriginal senator that we had in Parliament. And that would have been in the maybe even late 70s. And now, look, you've got plenty of them. And it's not unusual to have Aboriginal lawyers. In fact, one was just made a Justice of the Supreme Court of Queensland.
1: That's as it should be, Maggie. Exactly. It should
0: not be an unusual thing to encounter an Aboriginal person in your workplace. No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And my own personal point of view should be that... You know, Mr. So-and-so is now a justice of the Supreme Court and the fact that he's Aboriginal shouldn't even be mentioned. We will come to the Nevada
1: yep. one day where that's the case yes. about sexuality, race, yes. creed, all of those things. We'll get there one day yes. maybe, but we're probably not quite there yet. The other aspect that most people will be familiar with about Aboriginal people and custody is the, well, we had a real problem with Aboriginal deaths in custody to the point where we had a royal commission. Give we did. Give us a background about that.
0: Well, we did, and that was in 1996. And that came about because of in the Northern Territory where they were just treated appallingly. And again, if you look back at their culture, they're not used to confined spaces. So they were being locked in cells with nobody to talk to. And this is even presume that the officer treated them very well. The fact that they're in a tiny little cell for the first time ever in a foreign environment when they've been used to living in open spaces, Mm. that itself led to all sorts of...
1: It's a harrowing experience for anybody, but for somebody who's grown up
0: living on an open country, very much so. Yeah. So most recommendations were accepted by that commission, what they recommended was arrest people only when no other way exists for dealing with a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently that hasn't taken on in the Northern Territory. It appears that there's just been no change there. And obviously it wouldn't to individual officers in New South Wales too.
1: So arrest rates haven't changed in the Northern Territory since the handing down of these findings, right? No,
0: no. Mm -hmm. Imprisonment should be utilised only as a sanction of last resort. Well, that's not happening and I'll get to that in a Mm -hmm. minute. Police and prison officers should seek medical attention immediately if any doubt arises as to a detainee's condition. Some are doing it, some aren't. Initiate a formal process of reconciliation between Aboriginal people and the wider community. Well, that wallamark. Scheme has addressed that.
1: A part of that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know what they're doing in the Northern Territory. The The rate of deaths in custody of all prisoners has reduced. However, the number of Australians imprisoned has increased since then. Now, that's very interesting. So the
1: rate overall has dropped, but the number has No,
0: increased. only the deaths have dropped. Oh, okay. So the, the same number have... of
1: people are incarcerated? No, more. More people incarcerated? More people incarcerated. Less incarcerated. taking their own lives?
0: Yes, but less are taking their own lives. So while... How can, how can I put this? You take two steps forward, one step back. Because then governments legislate to somehow, I don't think they deliberately want to get around this, I just think that they haven't thought it through. Um, what do you mean by
1: that, Maggie? What's, what I mean What are you, what are you is, getting at?
0: There's legislation, for instance, the Bugmy decision. Okay, the first legislative response to the Bugby decision was to remove one important protection for indigenous offenders by introducing section twenty-one, capital A, five double A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, which removed the availability of intoxication as a mitigating factor at common law. Okay, so prior to that. If you were drunk, it mitigated what you did because you weren't fully in control.
1: doesn't excuse it. It doesn't excuse but mitigates it, but it, it
0: mitigated it. That's out the window. Why was
1: that a response to me? What's the direct connection between that finding in the Bugby case?
0: And Who would know? <laughs> Who would know? It but that's right, doesn't what doesn't Yeah, but that's the sort of thing that happens. So once you take that out, you've got more people in jail. hmm There was good legislation that was passed as well. The vulnerability of Aboriginal persons was recognised Section 18 of the Bail Act in 2013, which provides that a factor to be taken into account when determining whether to grant bail is whether the applicant has any special vulnerability, including being an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Okay, you're supposed to take that into account, but you can't take that he was drunk. Right. Okay, so how do those two sit together? Well,
1: you would imagine in many cases there's a crossover there that's intractable.
0: Yes. Yes. Now, um, in the... Enforcement Powers and Responsibility Act, that's the police powers, the regulations stipulate a number of safeguards for vulnerable persons, including additional assistance in the exercise of their rights and the provision of a support person when in custody. So there is a question there. Are you an Aboriginal or a Torres Strait Islander? And if the answer is yes, they're supposed to get you a support person. Right. So...
1: And there are other categories of people considered vulnerable who are not necessarily Indigenous. Is that, is that right? Well,
0: yes, but they're not on that form. Right. That's a particular question on that form. But statistics still show that they're in jail at much higher rates because governments in all jurisdictions continue to fund and fill more jails. And that's another topic that that's we'll topic get to we in another def- session. we <laughs> yeah. will
1: definitely come to yeah.
0: an interesting And this Bail Act that I spoke about in 2013, which is, again, a separate topic, that really ensured that bail was much, much harder to get.
1: There's a whole discussion we'll have about the politicisation of crime and things like bail, Uh, but we won't do that in this episode here. Just to wrap up with a couple of things, Maggie, you've spoken on previous episodes about legal aid and
0: the importance of it.
1: Is there a similar system for uh, specific for Aboriginal people.
0: There is, and it's called the Aboriginal Legal Service. Mm-hmm. It was founded in Redfern in 1970. It's the first, it was the first free legal service in Australia. Right. Because it came about before legal aid. So
1: completely free.
0: Yes. It's now funded. Yeah, completely free. It's yeah. now funded by the federal and state governments. Mm-hmm. It provides advice and representation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander persons. The areas of service that they give are criminal law, family law, care and protection law and tenancy services. They, like all government-funded things, they're underfunded. They're underfunded and they're overworked. But it's a fantastic service.
1: Are the lawyers at the Aboriginal Legal Service, employed full-time or is it somewhat like Legal Aid where lawyers volunteer or pro bono at the time? No,
0: no, no, no. They are employed full-time, so there's not that many of them and they don't have a panel like Legal Aid have.
1: So what's the impact of that?
0: Well, the impact that? of that is that whereas with legal aid, they have employed lawyers and then they have a panel system so that there's private lawyers who do cases on legal aid rates. The Aboriginal Legal Service doesn't have that. Is there a reason but, for that particularly? Yeah, funding.
1: Because it's fully funded. It's funding.
0: It's, it's, it's
1: considered to be complete.
0: Well, it's a little bit, yeah. It just hasn't happened. Hmm. So it's really underfunded. And they're really overworked.
1: In an area that's got to be said that is extremely important. It is extremely important. Access to the law and justice and understanding what those things are is really important for all citizens.
0: It is. And unfortunately, they start off with very young lawyers. So they have young lawyers. you You could arrive there on your first day at work and you have 100 cases that you see. Nobody's really taught you. You've come out of law school. You've done the practical course. That's part of the story. Yeah, that's no, only part of the
1: story. You're barely ready yeah. to start in truth.
0: And whoever is in charge of your area has hardly got time to scratch themselves, let alone help you. So you know, it's great, but it needs more funding.
1: Yeah. The quality of the product at the end of that yes. can't be as high as it
0: needs or, to be. Or it terms. should go like legal aid has gone, where the private sector can be involved on their rates. Yeah. And that works
1: very well, doesn't it? Legal aid—separate question—but the legal aid works really well, doesn't it? Or-
0: legal aid does work yeah. really well. You don't get rich in a hurry, uh-huh. but yet—it's
1: not the point of it. No, that's
0: not—that's not the point of it at all. And in fact, I think I've said in the past that if you want to be rich, don't do criminal law to no. begin with. But yes, it does work, yeah. and it allows people. But now, see, they've cut down on that too because there's now a means test
1: to get access to legal aid as yes. a defendant.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And that's very easy to change the settings for that and really reduce the number of people who get access, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. It is. I mean, it's fine if you're on Centrelink. You don't have a problem at all. But if you're earning money and you own a house, then they make you pay back what you spent. Not the full rate, but Mm. they still make you do it, which I've always thought is a bit unfair because let's say you work at David Jones as a sales lady and you've got three kids and you happen to get charged with something and you own a house, they will look at what you earn and they will look at the house and they'll take a caveat out on your house and they'll make you pay back the legal aid rate. Whereas if you're on Centrelink doing absolutely nothing, you have to probably pay $75. That's your contribution.
1: There's a whole discussion to be had about yeah. access to the law and justice, isn't yeah. there, <laughs> and how those things work. But I think the theme that comes through to me every time we talk is, if at all possible, spend your whole life avoiding becoming involved in the criminal justice exactly. system. No good comes of it
0: ever. Exactly. But to finish up on this, yep. what has happened is we finally learnt that The way to get around things is not to try to, with Aboriginal people, is not to try to change their way of life completely but to educate them and that's what these programs are doing and to understand their culture.
1: Are we talking basic education, reading and writing and some of those things no, as no, well? No, 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 no,
0: no, because they've had access to that right. for a long time. And in fact, they are supposed to be treated exactly the same. If a child, if a white child truants, there's trouble for the parents and it should be the same for Aboriginal people. Mm.
1: There's yeah. a lot of complexity around this stuff, yeah, isn't there? Yes, there is.
0: But, but the fact that we're doing pilot schemes, the fact mm. that we're acknowledging the problems, I think is a... Big step in the step right direction. Right direction.
1: So, practical effects of measures that have been put in place to address this overpopulation in prisons—is there anything we can point to? I mean, the Wallama thing sounds very encouraging. And yeah, the Wallama
0: thing. There are was, there the, yeah, there was the circuit program that was in the local courts. Well, they're mm-hmm. the two I know of, and I think people are just far more open to understanding.
1: Yeah, there's more acceptance that the problems are real. Yes. Maggie, I think we barely touched the surface, but we'll leave it there for the moment. A million things to talk about. Thank you very much.